a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Oh, he certainly is. Well, good morning to you, and Merry Christmas. Yes, we get to say that here. We don't have to say season's greetings or happy holidays or... It's Merry Christmas. Well, last week we began our three-part series titled The Gift, and Pastor Matthew began by describing to us the gift promised, the coming Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king. And today I'm going to be covering the gift wrapped. Now, I don't know if you've ever received a, a gift that was wrapped so oddly that you couldn't tell what it was by looking at the wrapping. Actually, my family rather enjoys wrapping packages this way. Uh, we, think, we think it's kind of adds to the excitement of the event. I mean, if you just wrap a DVD with paper and give it to someone, they know what it is before you even open it, right? I mean, it just, it's by the weight, by the shape, you know. But, but if you put that DVD inside of a vacuum cleaner box and wrap it, now you got something. There's excitement. Of course, there might be disappointment when it's not a vacuum, but on the other hand, at least they can't tell. So the question is, how did God choose to wrap the most important gift ever given? We're going to take a quick look at a passage in Philippians chapter 2 uh, to hear what God said, what the gift even was, and how it was wrapped. And then our message today will be from Hebrews chapter 2 to describe why did God give us this gift? So let's open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now what we can see here, right off the top, in verse 6, we're going to see that Jesus existed in the form of God. See, it says here in the form, that word form is the Greek word morphe, and it means essential nature. The essence of who he was. He was God. You see, Jesus didn't show up on the scene and begin his existence as a baby in Bethlehem. We know that, right? He actually was God, has always been God, and was God eternal that created the universe. This Jesus was not just something new. He was in the form of God. So the present that was wrapped was what? God. God wrapped God in some sort of wrapping. Now what kind of wrapping did he choose? Well, picture this. According to verse 7, and he says, uh, he took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. So he became a man. So can you picture this? The angels are watching. Here is the creator God that they have worshipped ever since they were created. And they watch him shrink himself smaller, smaller than a galaxy, smaller than a planet, smaller than an, almost a flea into an embryo in a teenage girl's womb. And they watch this and they're, 
dumbfounded. What is going on here? Then they also know that he retains his essential godhood, even as an embryo in that girl's womb. He is holding the universe together by the power of his word, even as an embryo. He has both natures are active at the same time. He took on a human nature. Well, what kind of a human did he choose to be? Powerful, influential, beautiful? No. According to uh, Isaiah 53, 2, it says this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing attractive? So is God saying he was homely? He was in plain looking? Yeah. Jesus came to be the plainest of the plain humans. That's incredible. He didn't become just a beautiful Adonis. I mean, if I was God and I was coming, wouldn't I really want to strut my stuff a little bit? You know, at least look impressive? Uh, he didn't. He came humbly and stooped low and he came even plain. Well, how far did he go further? Yes, according to verse 7, he became a servant. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he wasn't satisfied just being a plain human. He became a servant human. Well, is that far enough? No, it wasn't far enough yet. According to this verse in, in verse 8, he became obedient to death. Now, obedient to death is something you and I can't do. Did you know that? We die because we die. It's inevitable. You, can, you cannot nail God to a cross and expect him to die unless he chooses to do so. He had to decide and be willing to die. He had to be obedient to death. This is an incredible thing. We, we die because we die. He died because he chose to die. And that's why he said in John chapter 10 verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own authority. And on my own authority, I raise it back up again. Wow. Now this is the powerful God, mated with man, dying on a cross because he was obedient to the Father's will. So the first thing we should see as we jump into our passage of why did this happen, we have to understand that God chose to wrap deity in humility and humanity. The God-man came humble and just like us. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to read there. And we're going to jump in. And I'm going to go through six things. Six reasons why Jesus came wrapped plainly in humanity and in humility. Let's read. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it, is fitting, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. 
For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham." Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, now that we've actually seen in Philippians that the gift God gave was none other than the eternal Son of God and he was plainly wrapped. In fact, he was wrapped so well that the world didn't recognize him. In fact, they just thought he was a man. They couldn't tell just by looking at him that this was God. But we're going to share six things this morning of why Jesus came from this passage. Well, let's look at verse 9. It says here, But we see him who was made a little lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, God tells us in Romans chapter 3 that everyone was a sinner. And I'm sure it's a shock to everyone in this room to find out that God thinks you're a sinner because you never sin, right? And that would be news. No, we're all sinners. But God said there's actually a verdict that was been rendered because we are sinners. In Romans chapter 6, it says the wages of our sin, the penalty for our sin is death. We're all sitting under the judicial death penalty of God by nature. In fact, Jesus said the same thing in John 3.18 when he said, Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Jesus didn't come to earth at Christmas to condemn us. We already stood condemned. We handled that part pretty well. We stood condemned by ourselves. He came to do something else. So he took a form, and since the death penalty actually is required here, right? Wages of sin is death. God, to be just, has to extract death. Well, God said, well, I want to die for them. But you can't nail spirit to a tree. In John 4:24, Jesus says, God is spirit. So what does he have to do? He has to take on flesh. He has to take on something that can bleed and die. And that's part of the humiliation process from throne of God to man. 
And he took on a real humanity so that he could die. And I love this. It's really great. It says uh, his name of this salvation person is who? The person that became lower than the angels is Jesus. He wants us to be clear. This is our Savior. Jesus is his name. In fact, in Acts 4.12, it says, And there was no salvation, or there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is that name. And here we have it repeated. Jesus is the name of our Savior. Now, one of the things, too, is that he could taste death for everyone. Aren't you glad it didn't say he could taste death for the some? for a few. He tasted death for everybody. He stood in my place. When God says they deserve death, Jesus says take mine. So he tasted death for everyone. I'm an everyone. Do you know that you're an everyone this morning? You're an everyone. Right? Okay, so this applies to you now. He died and tasted death for you. No qualifiers. So the death penalty do you was rendered on Jesus. The one who deserved life got death. The ones that deserve death, us, we get life because he died. This is why he came. He came to taste death for every one of us so we don't have to die. You know, God, to be just here, has to render a penalty. It fell on Jesus. And so now, the first reason he came... The first reason he came is so that he could taste death for you and for me and that we would not have to die. Number one, this baby came wrapped in humility and humanity so it could die in your place and in my place. That's why he came. Well, that's the second reason. In verse 10, it says uh, that the, the reason he came is to be the perfect author of our salvation and bring us to the Father. So let's read the first part of that verse. For it was fitting for him, God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author, Jesus, of their salvation through sufferings. So the first thing we see in in verse 10 is it was fitting for God to do this. What does that mean? That just means it's consistent with God's wisdom and character to execute the plan that he did. You know, no other created being in the universe would come up with this plan. And I don't know who would be bold enough to suggest it to God. God, uh, we're in a predicament and I suggest you die. But God didn't seem to have a problem suggesting it about himself. And so God puts this plan in place and what does it do? Well, it actually says that it was consistent with his character, which means his holiness was preserved because by this death we are made holy. By this death his justice was carried out. By, by the sending of his son his love was evident, his grace was evident, his mercy was evident. All the characteristics of God were revealed in what he did. And it was fitting. We think it might be cruel, but it was the only plan that would work. The only plan. It's also important to note, I think, that it says that Jesus is the author of our salvation. 
Well, author in this term in the Greek is actually the word for pioneer or leader, a trailblazer, the one who actually blazed the trail for salvation. He doesn't just follow the trail. He blazes the trail for salvation. And he's a leader, which means he brings us along with him. He doesn't just point out the trail and say, over there. He takes us as a leader and calls us and sets examples of how to live. And so we live in a, a life that was exemplary by his suffering, by his obedience, by his love, by his care. He is a trailblazing savior. And it says here that he set the example for us and he will lead us. I want you to get this. Because he's a trailblazer, that trail led through the grave and back out. He's going to escort us on our last final journey. Jesus is the one who will come alongside and lead us home. He is the trailblazer. See, I think it's interesting to note that he says in this verse, he is going to be bringing many sons to glory. Do you see that? Do you notice it doesn't say he will be sending many sons to glory? Or he'll be calling many sons to glory? It says he will bring many sons to glory. This is consistent what it says in Jude 24. In Jude 24, it says that, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his glorious throne with great joy. Who is the one presenting? It's our trailblazing Savior, Jesus. And it says he's going to present you to the Father. He's just not going to send you into the, to the courtroom there and said, go see the Father. It says he presents us with great joy. Can you catch that? When he brings you in to see God the Father, he's going to bring you in and says, Father, guess what? Fred is here. He's going to be excited. He's going to be, have great joy. He's not going to bring you in the back door. When you arrive in heaven, this trailblazing Savior is going to present you to the Father. And this is the same thing that we see in the rapture of the church. If you read 1 Thessalonians, does he call for the church? Church, time to come home. Is that what he does? No, it says he comes back to earth and meets us in the air and takes us home. Do you get it? He is the, He comes alongside and brings many sons and daughters to the Father. This Savior is so wonderful. He doesn't just point out the way or just create the trail. He brings us along on the trail and takes us all the way to see the Father in person. And when He presents you before the Father, you got to know He's going to do it with great joy. He's not going to be looking at the floor and say, well, I don't know. Bill finally made it, but... Uh... I'm not really happy about it. but No, that never happens in heaven. He's going to present you and me with great joy. I hope you can rejoice in this. I hope you can rejoice in this, that Jesus is going to take you all the way to the Father and bring you there. He's not going to send you there. He's going to bring you there. Well, let's keep going. Why else did Jesus come all this way wrapped in humility and humanity? The third reason to sanctify us and put us in his family. Well, it says here, for both he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us, are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Now the word here 
For sanctify really means to purify or to make holy. There are other meanings like to be set apart. But I think the meaning here is to be made holy. Because what, what is it to be holy? Well, according to 1 Peter, Peter tells us, quoting Leviticus, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Well, how is God holy? Well, he's certainly set apart. He's one of a kind. But he's perfectly pure, morally blameless. And that's what he requires if you want to stand in his presence. So how you doing? On our own, we don't stand very well, do we? How, how many of you are morally pure and perfectly blameless? Not on my best day. Eh, not on my best day. And so from our vantage point, looking in our own lives, we might have difficulty seeing ourselves as holy, even those who have put faith in Christ. See, we know we've been freed from the penalty of sin because it says so. No, Romans 8, for there therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We also know that we've been freed from the power of sin, Romans 6 and 7, that basically sin has no more dominion over us. You have no more need to listen to sin. That power has been broken forever. So now, does that mean sin goes and waits in the car? Your sin nature, when, when you put faith in Christ, your sin nature goes, oh, I'm, I guess I'm done. How many people's sin nature quit the moment you became a Christian? I expected no hands. Mine didn't. It still talks to me. It still whispers in my ear. It still tries to doubt, get me to doubt God, disbelieve God, do things that God would not want. So what happens? This constant battle. God sees this. God sees that even though I put faith in him, I'm not perfect. So how does he see me though? Well, let's look at Hebrews quickly. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews 10.10. 10. It says this. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the verse 14 of the same chapter. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Are you paying attention to the verbs here? God sees the work as done. Jesus on the cross said, It is finished. What is finished? The propitiation of your sins, your righteousness. We were given the gift when we trust in Christ. We have his righteousness now. Now we don't look at it and we look at ourselves and say, are you kidding? I am not holy. I've never been holy in myself. But when God looks at me, what does he see? When God looks at you, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the purity of Christ. He sees the moral blamelessness of Christ. You are just like Jesus in his eyes. Right now. It says you were perfected and sanctified. It happened already. We just don't see it. And that's why it's really a trouble to me when Christians actually are so despondent. They go, man, I, I really didn't do good and you know, God's probably really disappointed in me and... Uh, that's wrong. God sees you as holy and blameless and pure because he sees Jesus. You never were good enough to be in his sight. No matter what you did, you were never good enough. We are filthy rags walking around. 
But the only thing is God has this lens of the blood of Christ. And when he looks at us, he goes, man, that looks good. They're in Jesus, my son. They're in Jesus, my son. That's what we have here. He has freed us. He has sanctified us. And now the other thing too, no matter what you see, Jesus says he's, you're pure enough now to be called his brother. So God not only says, I want you cleaned up and made holy, but I want you to be in my family. And Jesus says, you're brothers. Do you believe that? Do you, do you really consider the Son of God your brother? I know he's God. Jesus says he's not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. Are you ashamed to call him brother? Do we live our lives sometimes like we're ashamed of him? He's never ashamed of us. In fact, he changed his language. When he referred to all the people who followed him, his disciples, he called them sheep, he called them disciples, my followers. But at the cross... And after the cross, he started calling the people that followed him something differently. If you look, you don't have to turn there now, but if you look, I think it's in John chapter 20, um, verse 17. When Mary was clinging to his feet in the garden after he had risen from the dead, he says, Mary, stop clinging to me. I have yet, not yet ascended to the Father. Go tell who? My brothers. This is not a trite word for Jesus. He's not just using a common term. He never called his disciples brothers until after the cross. The cross work was paid. We now are qualified and have been declared by Jesus as his brothers and sisters. We're in his family. Okay? I want you to know, on your worst day, and your family might even be ashamed of you, there was one, your oldest brother, is never ashamed of you. He will present you faultless with great joy before the Father. On your worst day as a Christian, your worst day, he's not ashamed of you. Because your brightness and your standing before God was never based on how well you did. It was always based on what Jesus did for you. He died for you. He shed his blood for you. And he put you in his family. And you will never get out, by the way. He says, what I put in my hand and in the Father's hand will no way get out. He says, no one can take them out of my hand. Are you a someone? Yes, you are. I'm a someone. When Jesus says, no one will take them out of my hand, you disqualify yourself immediately by being a someone. You can't do it. Jesus will not let go of his brothers and sisters and he will never be ashamed. So I'm hoping, I'm praying that me and you both will never live as well we're ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. That would be a tragedy. But that's why he came. He came to make us brothers and to make us holy. Well, how about verse 14? Another reason, the fourth reason why Jesus came, says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Wow. So the fourth reason is to take, to defeat Satan and to take away his power over death. That's why he came wrapped in humanity and humility and died. To 
take away Satan's power and defeat him. Now, God saw at the beginning, Adam, through sin, fell and handed, as it were, the keys of creation to Satan. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. Satan rules the world we live in right now. Why do you think it's all messed up? God didn't mess it up. Satan messed it up. And it's interesting because he's the kingdom of the prince of power of the air. We were all subjects of his kingdom. We were all his servants and slaves. We had no other choice. We were not accepted by God. We were not clean. We were not pure. We were not holy. And we were slaves of Satan. See, we had a cruel master. And we need to be set free. Um, Jesus told us in Mark 3, 27. He says, in order for someone to take a strong man's property, you need to first deal with the strong man. Otherwise, when you try to take his property, he'll deal with you. Well, that's what Jesus did. He came to take on the strong man. He came on to take Satan on and defeat him. And totally defeat him. See, and that's why, and how did he do it? How did, how did Jesus defeat Satan? It says right here, for which, see, if we're reading this here, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. So Jesus died. But it doesn't say Jesus died here, does it? It says through death. Jesus went through death. He went into one side of death and right out the other side, out of the grave. He went through death. See this? Jesus didn't, just dying wouldn't have solved the problem. But he went through death and came out the other side resurrected. That is what caused this defeat of Satan. And now what did it accomplish? Well, Satan had been mastery, had mastery of death since the beginning. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. Why do you think Cain killed Abel? Had a bad pizza? No. Jesus, God told him, hey, sin is crouching at your door. Satan is going to try to get you to do the wrong thing. You've got you to resist. But he didn't. Satan is a murderer. He wants to kill you. Did you know that? Satan wants to kill each one of you because he doesn't want this good news of Jesus to go anywhere. He wants it to stop. But what this says is Jesus defeated Satan. He is a defeated enemy. He can no longer stop you. He can't touch you. He can't get near you. In fact, according to Revelation 1.18, it says this. Jesus is talking. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What does that mean? Jesus is in charge of death now. Not Satan. He took the keys right out of Satan's hand. He cannot threaten you with death anymore. Jesus holds the keys. If anybody's going to die, Jesus is the one that will permit it or not. Jesus. No one else. Now, the other thing too, is Jesus having the keys means he can set us free. But see, Satan has not given up, even though he's defeated. Did you know that? He didn't, he didn't go wait in the car. In fact, he's very much like, it seems stupid. Have you ever watched games when a team is behind 70 to nothing and there is 48 seconds left and the team that's behind is desperately trying to win? What is that? That's Satan. 
He's behind. 70 to nothing and the game's almost over. And he's not going to score a point. He's not going to score a point. And, but he's trying. He's trying. He's getting crazier and crazier. Did you know that? They said he knows his time is short and he's getting frantic. He's going to pull out all the stops. But one of the things he cannot do because he is a defeated foe, he is a chained lion, and nothing can get to you without Jesus' permission. See, Bunyan, Bunyan told the story about Pilgrim's Progress. He says, I can't go into the castle because there's a lion there. He says, it's a chained lion. You can walk right by it and do this because it can't reach you. Why? Because he's on God's leash. God has already defanged this lion. This lion is on a chain. It can growl at you. It can bark at you. It can try to intimidate you and scare you. But it can never harm you. Never touch you. Because he is a defeated foe. And that's why Jesus came. Remember we sang the song this morning. And a lot of people say, why are we singing God? Rest ye merry gentlemen. My goodness. Isn't there a better Christmas carol to sing? Not for me. If you remember, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why? To save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Oh, joyous day. We've been set free from our cruel enemy and he will never bother us again. Again. Now, there's a happier part of the story for us because we read the end of the story in Revelation 20 it says that this foe who will fight even after Jesus comes back to the earth and reigns like a king he still won't give up he still tries to conquer the king he won't in a moment he's destroyed and thrown forever into hell that's what it says this is a defeated foe he just doesn't act like it but we know and must trust what God says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's why Jesus came to defeat our greatest foe and set us free. In um, verse 15, he says he's going to free us from our enslaving fear of death. Let's read that. And not only will he defeat Satan, it says in verse 15, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, one of Satan's greatest weapons has always been mankind's fear of death. Did you know that? It's one of his greatest weapons. It's not just a terror. It's been called the king of terrors. It's what most people will say they're afraid of. In fact, the world uses our fear of death, even haunted houses, movies, scary things. Why? They put cemeteries. They put skeletons. Things that remind us of death to try to intimidate and scare us. Um, and there might be good reasons to fear death, but it's impossible for us as humans to really know what it is we're afraid of because anybody who goes there can't come back and tell you what it's like. Except one. Jesus. You can't trust the books. They said, well, I was dead for 45 minutes. Or I was dead for an hour and a half. Well, I was dead for a day. Uh, I... Jesus is the authority on death and coming back. This is the authority we use. We don't, but the world's appetite is, seems never to be satiated, right? We still want to learn more about what happens on the other side. Well, one of the things we fear, I have to say, and this real fear, is death painful. Now, some people might say, I'm not really afraid to die. I just, how? 
is, a, is the problem. I just don't want it to be painful. I mean, a fighter pilot's worst fear was not dying. It was dying when his plane catches fire. So how we die might be a really legitimate fear. But death itself may not be the problem for that person. Well, some people will fear death because it's the end of relationships, right? Death is the, one of the most painful separations we ever go through. And we said, I don't want to think about death because it means that painful separation. That's a legitimate fear. But we're going to hear that Jesus has a solution for that because he says it won't be for long. That separation might be real, but it won't be for long. What's another type of a fear? Well, a fear might be, there, might, there are people, you know, that believe in God, but don't believe in Jesus. Did you know that? They're very godly people. They think God's in charge of the universe. They just don't believe in Jesus. Do you think they might fear the judgment of God? They don't necessarily fear death itself. They fear what comes right after. Meeting God. And going through judgment. Is that you? Well, there's some that don't even believe in God. They think the here and now is all there is. Um, and so they go, they go for the gusto, grab the bass ring. You only go around once in life. And the worst thing you can do to them is what? Take their life. Because that's all there is. There is nothing else. There is no afterlife. There is no reward. There is no God. There is no heaven. There's just now. Jesus said those fears are insane because that's absolutely not the most, thing, most important thing to fear. According to Matthew 10, 8, 28, it says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, there is a reason to fear. Without Christ, we have one. I fear God. I don't know about you. And I'm so glad that I've been given redemption through Christ. Because that's what solves this fear. God says he wants to take away our fear of death. Well, why, why did he do that? Well, perfect love casts out fear. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. He doesn't want us to be afraid. So what does he say? I'm going to change your perspective on death. I want to be like Apostle Paul, who said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is lousy. Is that what he said? To die is gain. When Paul was talking, he says, you know, I'm torn. I want to help you guys out and serve you, but I want to go home. But because God wants me to help you out, I'll stick around. That's my paraphrase. Right? God wants us to look at death so much differently. He wants to say, hey, don't fear it. Look forward to it. It's now going to be not the end of the story, but your entrance into glory. Death is no longer the end. For us, death is just a doorway to Jesus. I just think that's incredible. That's why we can say in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus came to put an end to our fear of death. We should not fear death. It's not that we want it to happen immediately. But we should not fear it. We should not fear what the world will do to us. We should not fear the process. 
God says, I'm going to take you all the way through like the trailblazing pioneer he was. He says, I've already been to death and back and I know how to get you right through. In fact, you, according, right, according to, I think it's Mark, it says you will not see death. You won't even see death. Did you know that? We won't even get to see death. We're going to get whisked by so quickly, it'll just be here or Jesus. There is no death. We don't look death at at all. We see Jesus. What an incredible thing. In fact, in Revelation 20, it says eventually, one day, death itself will be destroyed. There'll be a time in heaven, death is out of the picture. I'm looking forward to that. That means no more goodbyes, no more cancer, No more sadness, no more sorrow, no more tears. Just joy and the presence of God. That's what Jesus came wrapped up in humanity and humility to accomplish. So that we no longer have to fear death. But we can look forward to it, embrace it and say, God, I'm sure that's why he didn't tell us too much about heaven. Because we'd all be looking to go home. I really think that. If he showed us what heaven was really like, we'd all be punching our tickets. We get too attracted and too attached to this earth. We think this is the cool place. Heaven is the cool place. Heaven is the wonderful place. Man, I just, I can't think too much about heaven. I have to, because it seems like when, I, when you're young, you say, oh, that's a long way away. No, it's, it's happening. In fact, no, no, I wouldn't even go there. Okay, verse, the sixth reason and the final reason in this passage why Jesus came wrapped in humanity and humility. Let's read actually verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See Jesus became like us and experienced life as we knew it Uh, because he wanted to be more than just our Savior. According to verse 10, we've seen that he wanted to become the perfect author of our salvation. Let me ask you a couple questions. Was it necessary, in your mind, for Jesus to live homeless and in poverty to be able to atone for our sins on the cross? I don't think so. Was it necessary for him to be mocked, ridiculed, abused, scorned, betrayed. Were those all necessary for cross work? I don't think so. So why were they part of his experience? Why did Jesus come to earth as a humble human being, a plain human being, and suffer all of these life's indignities? Because he wanted to be the perfect author of our salvation and he wanted to become our sympathetic, merciful, and faithful high priest. He didn't come. See, he could have accomplished the cross work of Christ and died as the sinless lamb without being poor. He was poor so he could relate to those who are. He became wounded so he could relate to those who are. He suffered because he wanted to relate to those who are and become the perfect high priest and help to those people. But here, let's look at this. Do you think that there's a class of suffering you're going through right now that Jesus just can't understand. Yeah, I've got one he doesn't know about. 
See, and this is important. This is the difference between an omniscient God who knows about all these things and a God who put on a human nature and endured them and suffered them and felt them. He now knows just what you know. He knows what that betrayal feels like in his heart. Not as God, but as man. But they're together and now he combines those things. And now he's become, by what he suffered, a sympathetic, faithful, merciful high priest. He knows what it's like to be in our shoes. And this gives me great hope because he's not surprised. And now he can stand before the Father and he says, Well, I went through so many things, Father. I went through abandonment. I went through betrayal. I went through shame, hunger, thirst, persecution, mocking, injury, torture, homelessness. Pick one. Why does that happen? Because as a faithful high priest, he wants to provide help to connect us to the Father and to make us who we need to be in Christ. And he can now listen to your cries and say, Father, I hear what that person's needing right now. And I'll tell you what, I was there myself. I know what that feels like as a human. And this is what they need right now. They need this comfort. They need care. They need encouragement. They need wisdom. They need resources. This is what they need. And he's our faithful and merciful high priest. And what makes Jesus unique? Are there a lot of people in your life that can even be sympathetic? They can cry tears over your situation? I've got a lot of people that might say, Ooh, that sounds pretty bad. Like, ooh, man, I'm sorry. But they can't help me. The God-man can help me. This is why he came. The God-man came and suffered all these things to be my merciful, my faithful, and my sympathetic high priest. And he's going to help me because he's lived where I'm living. He's experienced what I'm experiencing. And he knows exactly what I need. And guess what he can do? He has the power to help. And he wants to. Do you get that? This is not just a God who's distant. And you have to understand too, I didn't cover it at the beginning, but it's important to know. When God became a man, we sometimes think that Jesus suddenly became merciful, tender, compassionate, meek, lowly Jesus. These are the characteristics he possessed as God. He had these characteristics from the foundation of time. He brought them with him as a man. He didn't suddenly become compassionate as a man. It was his mercy and compassion that drove him to do this. So when we approach God, don't think that you have to approach this Jesus person only because he said, I and the Father are one. The Father's characteristics of love, mercy, grace. What did he say? I'm the compassionate God. Right? Merciful God. That's how, we, how he described himself in Exodus. We have to understand that God stands ready to help you and me right now. And not just from a position of, I'm God and I know, but from a position of a man who has experienced the exact same trial. That should give me hope. Do you think God can help me? Oh, he's the only one that can. There's no one that understands like Jesus. Nobody in this room will understand what I go through more than Jesus. And do you know what that means? He understands too that we are weak and we're faithless at times. But he remains faithful. And he knows that, you know what? This is hard. What they're just going through is hard, Father. Here's what they need. He doesn't condemn. He gives us help. 
That's what it says here in verse 18. For since he was tempted that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid. It doesn't say he's able to condemn those who are tempted and fail. He comes to the aid of those who are tempted. He knows what it takes to stand under temptation. He's the only one that does. Do you know how strong is something? You don't know until you break it, right? I mean, that's how they test things in engineering. They find out what its breaking strength is. Well, if you tested Jesus in temptation, it doesn't break. There is no temptation stronger than Jesus. So where we broke, he doesn't. He's the only one that knows what the full power of temptation is. He's the only one. And he came to your aid and mine. And that's why he came in flesh. So he could experience life. Not just to be a savior, but to be the perfect savior. The perfect savior. Well, I just get excited for this. I have to tell you. When I hear and think about Christmas now, in this Christmas season, I'm thinking of more than just the baby Jesus lying in a manger. I'm thinking of everything that the God-man went through to buy for you and me, to purchase our salvation, to make us pure and holy, to put us in his family, to call us brothers, to defeat my greatest enemy, Satan, to render the power of death broken in my life, and to make me available to me those faithful, merciful, sympathetic, not condemning judge and God, but high priest that will take my needs before the Father. You know, he pleads for you. He's the one that ever lives to intercede for us. That's what he's doing right now. On your worst day, know that Jesus is interceding before the Father for you. If you know Christ... I don't want anybody looking at their shoes today saying, I'm not holy. Oh, nobody is. The only one that's holy is Jesus. What I want you to do is say, thank you, Jesus, for making me holy in your sight. That's what you should say. Not, oh, I'm not worthy. Of course not. But he is. Well, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Does anybody still feel isolated and lonely, not in a family that matters? Maybe even your family is ashamed of you. Jesus offers you a family that will always love you, never be ashamed of you, and he will present you to his Father one day personally. Count on it. Is there anybody here still uh, afraid of death. Anybody here? They still fear death? Jesus doesn't want us to fear death. He broke Satan's power. He's rendered him powerless. Death is no longer to fear because we have a great hope. We don't have fear anymore. We have a joy coming our way. That's why it says in Thessalonians, don't grieve as the world does. Why? Because you got hope, brother and sister. You got hope. Anybody still fearing death? Jesus came to take it away from you. If you'll take Jesus, he'll take your fear. Is anyone here still in need and power to overcome temptation? Anybody here still defeated by some sin in your life? Jesus came 
to experience all temptation so he now knows how to give you the help. If you want help out of your temptation, Jesus came all the way from heaven, wrapped himself in flesh, took on the trials of this world, and is now standing ready to help you. Do you want help? It's only a question away. Gotta ask. Well, Jesus paid the price for us to be holy and receive his righteousness. He's an all-sufficient Savior. He came to rescue us. And if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, please, please, I would just beg you to do that. You need not fear death. You can be made holy in God's sight. You can have power over sin and temptation. All gifts that Jesus took with him and gave to us. You see, I think some of us are very willing to take the gift of Jesus. But he offered these six other gifts that we don't unwrap. We're still sometimes afraid of of death. We're still sometimes trapped in temptation. We still, some of these gifts we've never taken for our own. Jesus paid the price for all of them. For all of them. And I want you all to enjoy the benefits of them all. Please come to Christ. And if you know Christ, please take the gift and open it. All of it. Every part of it. Jesus was not afraid and not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I pray that as we live in this Christmas season, none of us are ashamed to call Jesus our brother. Father, Thank you for all of these wonderful gifts that you've given us. I can't believe the humility that it would take for God to wrap him up so plainly. Father, would all of us be willing to take this plainly wrapped gift that holds so much treasure inside? Sometimes we discount it because it's wrapped plainly. Oh, Father, may we open it up and receive the gift that Jesus died to purchase for us. May we enjoy all of these things, Father, that you have granted in our life. And may we live this holiday season, this Christmas time, recognizing how wonderful of a Savior we have that would come all this way wrapped in flesh wrapped in humility to present us to the Father holy and with great joy in Jesus name Amen Thank you